Hello and welcome back to the Aspiring Black Social Worker Podcast. I am your host, Shaw. I am a third year and final semester MSW student. And this podcast is my landing ground, a place for me to process all that I'm learning in grad school and a space for me to discuss all the random things running through my mind. (laughs) Thank you all for listening and following along with me. If you find some enjoyment in this podcast, please subscribe. If you listen to me on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review this podcast. This really helps with visibility so other people can find the podcast easier. Also, follow me on Instagram at Aspiring Black Social Worker. All right, first things first. I know I have been saying that I want to come up with new names for my segments for quite a while now. And I have finally figured it out. I'm not saying that these are permanent. I will say that these are in a trial phase um, because these very much is a possibility that these may change. The format of the show will be the same, but I'm hoping that having segment titles will help me transition into each segment a little easier. Um, And the reason I say these may change because this, most of these came to me around like four something this morning. I was still halfway asleep, but like I woke up like I need to figure out my segment name. So (laughs) here they are. The moment you have all been waiting for. Okay. So after the intro, we will have the segment titled My Sphere of Influence. This segment will include stories stemming from my personal life. This can involve my friends, my family, work stories, co-workers, or any other spaces and roles that I occupy. This is not a gossip segment. It could just be me talking about my week or it could be extensions on conversations I have had with people that I feel would be interesting to discuss on the podcast. The next segment is called Cognitive Musings, previously known as What's On My Mind This Week. I'm kind of proud of myself for coming up with this name because I think it sounds intellectual, but also lets y'all know that these are just my personal musings. Am I trying to persuade y'all to take my views? Sometimes. (laughs) But really, I just like to share my perspective on various topics. The last segment will be called recently in grad school instead of this week in grad school because as y'all know, I have not been uploading episodes weekly. Um, so I'm trying to keep the titles as honest as possible, um, but it's the same content as well. Also, a consideration is that as I'm nearing the end of my time in graduate school, I am thinking about how to pivot this podcast. I realize, especially with the recently in grad school segment, that I'm going to need to switch it up completely, which may affect the whole podcast in ways that I have not yet figured out. But what I was thinking to kind of keep the same feel of the podcast and maybe even elevate it to the next level 
is I was thinking maybe I could have other aspiring black social workers come on for this segment. You know, bachelors, masters, people pursuing their licensing, um, you know, or other social workers coming on just to kind of give tips about, you know, being in school, getting licensing, that kind of thing. Um, so it can be conversations regarding school. They can discuss what they're learning, some tips, or they can share like challenges or successes or just tell their stories to provide inspiration for other aspiring black social workers or other social workers in general. Um, if y'all like this idea or if y'all want to be a guest on the podcast, let me know. Email me at aspiringblacksocialworker at gmail.com or send me a DM on Instagram at aspiringblacksocialworker. If this segment does not work out, like if no one's interested in coming on the show to talk about their experiences as a social worker entering school, um, this segment may pivot to like discussing my career in some way. Or it could revamp the whole podcast in general. Um, we'll see y'all. All right, let's hop into my sphere of influence. Um, so this past week, my youngest daughter was the terrific kid for her class. I was super excited. She was super excited. I mean, honestly, she's just a really amazing little person. I just adore her, like, for real. I think she's terrific in every day, in every way. Like, to know her is to love her. I don't even know how to explain this little girl, but she's just the sweetest. Um, and so <laughs> while I was excited for her, I started thinking about what it means to be a terrific kid, right? It typically means that the child is smart, at least a hard worker, typically both. She shows good leadership skills in school, like she's a good friend. She's not like a person who, or there, because it could be a girl or a boy or whoever, someone who like bullies people. They kind of show up as someone who is respectful of everyone. They're obedient and they don't cause any trouble. All of these qualities are really good for the school environment, right? But I realized that when you award kids for being obedient and not causing troubles, trouble, they may become adults who are obedient and don't cause any trouble. Which for me isn't necessarily a good trait as an adult. I honestly don't think that there's anyone who I look up to that follows all the rules or like doesn't have some propensity to get into a little trouble a little good trouble right like I don't I'm not looking up to people who are like violent or like thieves or, but like people who cause a little ruckus um those are the ones who typically make change and those are the people that I look up to so I was just kind of thinking about this as far as like what we're ingraining in our children with awards like terrific kid um which 
I honestly don't think my daughter would have an issue because she's very much her own person who will ask for what she wants. She will set boundaries quickly with people, her siblings, me, her dad, other adults, other children. Um, so, and I encourage that. So I don't think that she will have issues because I definitely... I'll just say boundaries are one of the few things that my children will get in trouble for. Meaning, I fully expect them to respect each other's boundaries at all times. Like, it doesn't matter when the boundary is set. If there is a strict boundary, I want them to respect it. Sometimes <laughs> that looks like them being in the middle of playing and one of them being like, oh, I don't, this is not a fun to me anymore. Or this is just kind of getting on my nerves and I want to stop. And I expect the other person to just stop. Other times I do think they can use it to their to their benefit because they know that I'm going to be like, no, no, no. If she don't want to do that, she don't have to do that. If she don't want you in her room, you don't go in her room. If she don't want you touching her things, don't touch her things. If she don't want you touching her, don't touch her. Like if she don't want you calling her that name, don't call her that name. Like that is who I am. And sometimes I think they use it to like make the other person like get on their nerves <laughs> just because it's, they know that if I don't know what's going on, I'm going to be on the person's side who set the boundary initially. Sometimes I have to do a little digging. But anyway, anywho, okay, <laughs> I do think kids should be rewarded right i think that is something kids need they look for they want to know that they're doing a good job they want to know that someone sees their hard work and their efforts but i also think it's up to parents and guardians to encourage them to question authority in a way right i don't want my children being obedient to the wrong people i want my children to have critical thinking skills like i want them to be able to think about their actions the actions of others, what others are asking of them, what they're asking of other people in a way that allows for people to have autonomy, allows for themselves to have autonomy, um, and also just allows for them to question the why behind something. I, I'm not the parent who's always like, if I tell you to do something, just do it, don't question me. I think that people even children, have the right to know the why behind something instead of just being blindly obedient. That doesn't always go over as planned, especially if it's like a continuous thing I have to keep asking. And also, I know a lot of other parents don't believe that, but that's me. <laughs> um, and, I'm, and I just want to make it clear, I'm not saying that schools or teachers are at fault in this because I said I do believe that children deserve to be rewarded and I do know that having kids who are obedient <laughs> make their lives easier because you know they're managing a lot of people at once um, but I was just thinking about how when I was at the ceremony for terrific kids and all the kids they bring them up from all grades and they read a little like paragraph of what the teacher said about why they got the award and most of the kids, like well over majority of the kids, had something in there about obedience as to why they got the award. 
a lot of teachers use the word model in place of obedient, but it's the same. So just as in, let's say, Sean is a model student for other kids to follow in class. He's always on task. He's well behaved, blah, 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 like stuff like that. So it's not saying, oh, he's obedient, but it's saying he's a model kid and other kids should look up to him because he does these things without problem. Um, I don't know. I guess the point I'm making is that obedience does not breed creativity, innovation, or even joy. And it's just like a finding a balancing act for rewarding obedience and rewarding my children for finding their own ways of being, right? I do want my children to be obedient for the most part. I'm not saying I don't. I don't want kids who always got something to say back to me always. But I also want to honor their autonomy in a way, right? So they do feel free to say, why am I being asked this? I don't want to do this. Um, I do want to do this, you know, so finding that balance, it can be hard, but, um, it's, it's necessary to have children grow into adults who are able to have a effect on their lives, the lives of other society, whoever in a positive way and in a way that um, doesn't just follow the status quo, right? To challenge some of the norms, especially when you think about it, the fact that I'm raising black children, right? So I don't want them just being blindly obedient to everything and missing the parts that could possibly harm them. All right, so moving past that, the second topic I wanted to discuss stems from two separate, I don't know, like one of them wasn't a conversation that I was having when I was listening to a conversation. So I'm going to say like two separate conversational events maybe, um, but they relate in a way and I thought it would be good, a good conversation to have on the podcast regarding work and how you are treated, valued, and respected. So for a little background, I was on a LinkedIn Live recently listening to a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert practitioner um, who was speaking with someone else, right? And I really like this individual's work and typically find their insight to be spot on. Like I can read their articles, I can read their posts, I can watch a video that they post and I'm like yep 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 <laughs> like I resonate with this but on this day this particular day they said something that caused me to pause right in this conversation they were speaking with someone about DEI in the workspace this person said this expert DEI expert said that they do not care as much about changing people's hearts and minds regarding how they feel about like marginalized populations as long as people respect one another and just kind of think about that they don't care about if someone 
still believes that, you know, white people are superior, still holds on to white supremacy culture. They don't care if people feel like women are shouldn't be in positions of power. They don't care about whether LG like people, you know, respect not necessarily respect, um, people understand and value the lives of LGBTQ people, right? Um, they just say as long as you respect them in the workplace, that's what they're going for. Okay. So that's the first kind of dialogue I'm referring to. The second was actually a two-part conversation that I had with two different people completely. Um, and I don't want to get into specifics for confidentiality reasons because some people, some of these people may listen to the podcast. Um, but the conversations were about valuing the work that people do. And my contribution to this conversation, well, both of the conversations were pretty much the same. I said that someone can value the work you do without valuing you. Someone can value your output as in your work, what you do that makes their lives easier, makes them look good, or you're doing something that they don't want to do, so they're happy that they found someone to do it. So they can value that output without valuing your input, meaning they don't want or care about your thoughts, ideas, feelings, like anything, your ways to make things better, you know, what you found to work best for this population or this practice or anything. They don't care about that. They just want you to do your job and they are happy that they have someone who is competent to do it well enough where they are not, where it does not make them look bad, right? They don't have to look for someone new. They don't have to hire someone else. Um, and the reason that these two dialogues relate is because they are they were both discussing DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, on some level. And the message I I have is that respect and value aren't enough. When I think about like diversity, equity, inclusion, I think about leveling the playing field for marginalized communities, marginalized groups, making sure everyone feels included and actually bringing new people to the table and giving them power within organizations. And by new people, I mean people from these marginalized populations, bringing them into the table, giving them a voice, giving them power, giving them, you know, the authority to make decisions based on their area of expertise, right? And someone put something somewhere, it's like, um, don't let the only positions of like power that you feel with marginalized population be your diversity, equity, and inclusion positions. Meaning, you know, you should have other directors and chief of staffs and, you know, executive leadership who are of color besides just, not just of color, of course, but from marginalized populations that are not just in the DEI roles. Um, let me see, what was I trying to say? Because I don't got off track. Yes, yeah, so back to respect and value. So yes, respect is important. 
Yes, people should be valued for the work that they do. But I feel like that's the minimum, right? People from marginalized populations deserve more than the minimum. If an organization commits to DEI work, their goal should not be respect and value of people's work. Because that should honestly already be there. Like, I feel like that's like one step above like EEOC, like guidelines. <laughs> I respect you. I, meaning I don't call you at your name at work. I, you know, I'm not yelling at you. I'm not putting you down. I appreciate the work that you do for this organization. Right? That is the minimum. And I just think. If you're doing this DEI work, it should be more than about respect, okay? I'm not going to get into all my thoughts here because this isn't the time, but it's like there should be growth, and that growth should be recognizable, measurable in how your DEI efforts are shown or presented within your organization, right? And I don't want to um, keep talking about this, like I said, this instead of time. But my main takeaway is that I don't want people to confuse someone valuing your output with them valuing your input. And the analogy that I used for this, and I'm going to take it all the way back, right? But I think it makes for, you know, a great understanding, this analogy. Slave owners valued the work of their slaves because it made them wealthy it made them profitable and that's why slave owners wanted the strongest people to work for them that work is their output slave owners didn't care about the input of the slaves the enslaved population but they did care that you were doing the work that they assigned you to do and they valued that work so much that if you ran away, they would send slave patrols after you, right? They would beat you when you came back. They would discipline you in other ways. They'll, you know, sell you off to separate you from your family so you can just focus on their work that they want you to do. So, yes, that's they valued the work of the enslaved people, but they didn't value the slaves' feelings, their thoughts, inputs if you are beating someone and they're crying out you don't value that input that those cries are input those cries is saying this is against my will this pains me this is harming me they don't care get back to work Get your beat and get back to work. Anyway, that this is not just about <laughs> black people, of course. Uh, but that was just, I thought that analogy was just very on point. Okay. Um, because it's not just about. This doesn't just happen to people of color, people in marginalized communities, right? This can happen to anyone. Because um, some CEOs, some bosses, some supervisors have this mentality of, I just care about the output. 
Um, so it doesn't matter the demographic of the workers, they can still be subject to only being valued for their work. So just remember, you deserve more than respect and value. No matter who you are, what, where you are in the company, you deserve to be seen, to be heard, to be included, especially in decisions that affect you or your team. You deserve that. So start demanding that. So let's jump into the cognitive musing segment. And what I want to talk about today is the mental health effects of watching and re-watching videos of black people being murdered by the police. Now, what I'm going to say could definitely apply to other people getting murdered by the police or getting murdered in general, watching videos of such graphic, horrific events can have negative mental health effects. Um, but I am sure you all have been seeing the post where people are encouraging you to not watch the video of Tyree Nichols being murdered by the cops. And I, for one, will not watch videos like this because I know that I can be triggered by this. Um, as someone who is an avid reader of mainly fictional books, I am pretty good at imagining what happened just from reading the stories of what happened to these men and women. So... Like, for instance, when Ahmaud Aubrey happened, and I know he wasn't murdered by police, but whenever I read the story, I really felt like I was like a bystander watching this happen, and I never seen the videos. Um, the same with George Floyd, the same with Breonna Taylor. Like, if I have any amount of details that are descriptive enough, I can pretty much put myself into the scene and see it for myself. So I also try to limit what I read about these cases. And I know that, um, and I believe that people have valid reasons for wanting to see the videos or watching the videos. Um, and I think they are valuable to society as far as, you know, getting the word out and making sure that people know what's going on. I just also know that with the positives that happen with like having smartphones and having social media, there is a negative side effect to it all as well. And one of the negative side effects is the mental health of specifically, I'm talking about black people watching the videos of other black people being murdered. Um, so I'm not trying to sway you one way or another. I just want to kind of give you some facts and hopefully educate a little bit about it. Because, well, I started grad school in 2020. So that was a very year of full of grief, really, of people being murdered. 
Um, many people call it a reckoning in America. Um, I don't know if I consider it a reckoning because I also see us going backwards or staying stagnant. Um, but many people consider what happened to George Floyd a racial reckoning in the United States of America. Um, so I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I just kind of want to give you the facts. And I actually recorded this episode, this segment, once before. But I felt like I could make it a lot more succinct and kind of get my point across quickly. So the first thing I want to talk about is what collective traumas are and what vicarious race-based traumatic stress is. Um, So there has been research that found that Black people experience vicarious racism frequently, especially those who identify as being Black as like one of their main characteristics. Like this is a big part of who they see themselves as. This is their most salient identity. They really love being black or not even necessarily love it, but that's how they kind of see themselves in society, right? So if you can experience vicarious racism, right? Vicarious meaning indirect. You are not present. You are not there. You did not witness it firsthand. This is secondhand racism. Um, If you can experience that, as research has found, it stands the reason that you can also experience vicarious race-based trauma. Um, So race-based traumatic stress is defined as the emotional trauma brought on by the stress of racism. And I will definitely, if you're interested in like sources that I'm getting this from, because this is all research that I've done, well, not research that I've done, articles that I've done, read, and like putting like a lit review for some papers I've written. Um, I can definitely share those, but it's a ton of them. So now that you understand what, race-based traumatic stress is how did you understand what vicarious racism and vicarious race-based trauma is what I decided to call it in one of my papers was um, vicarious race-based traumatic stress I just kind of combined the two Um, but it is it is commonplace because we are seeing social media videos, media videos of very vivid and graphic um, exposures to people being murdered. That's not something anyone wants to see. That's not something normal for people to see. Most people in their lives would not see someone being murdered, but we have that ability now because of social media and smartphones, right? You honestly, most people just wouldn't see this. This is while black men are killed by police at a number higher than any other race. Black people are killed at a number higher than any other race. Still, most people would not see this. I honestly can say I've never, I don't know any of the people who've been murdered by police. I don't know of one, right? And I may not know one personally my whole life. I hope I never know anyone personally who's been you know, murdered by police. But my point that I'm making is because we have social media, because we have smartphones and people are seeing 
you know, recording things and sharing them and posting them and reposting them all the time, we are able to witness something that most people should never witness, right? Um, And so there has been research that shows that vicarious racism and as a result, vicarious trauma, race trauma, has effects on the mental health that are similar to PTSD, right? So there have been, have been studies done that show that Black individuals who experience these forms of racism through, like vicariously, have symptoms of hypervigilance, avoidance, fear, intrusive thoughts, dissociation, anger and aggression, anxiety, depression, um, isolation, um, hyper, hyper arousal, like just so many things that you would see with a person who has PTSD as you would think of it normally, right? Like veterans coming back from war, that kind of thing. A lot of domestic violence survivors experience PTSD because they were being abused. And so while veterans and domestic violence survivors experience these directly, we can also experience it through the media. There have been studies done, especially like when 9-11 happened, when the Boston Marathon shooting happened, like just mass murders, school shootings, that people experience PTSD symptoms, right? Um, and what they are, what they're considered is collective traumas. Whenever something like this happens that affects a large group of people, is highly publicized, the country mourns with you, it's a collective trauma, while the shootings and murders of black people by cops is not a not considered a mass murder, the sheer numbers in which it happens it still produces a collective trauma response. So there are studies that show like with mass shootings and the media like video footage of mass shootings can cause PTSD and it can take up to six months for people to recover from those PTSD-like symptoms, right? With the murder of black people, and you're constantly seeing it, right? On social media because everyone's talking about it. Everyone's posting the video. Everyone's making blog posts and articles and, you know, people's just talking about it. That's showing you that we experience a collective trauma. The sheer number of people who are talking about the Tyree Nichols murder shows you that it's a collective trauma in the black community. The problem is, is that our trauma and PTSD-like symptoms are compounded because, like I said, if it takes six months for someone to recover from their symptoms of PTSD from seeing a mass shooting on CNN or MSP, NBC or social media, if it takes six months, think about how black people are being shot by police in shorter time frames than that. You don't have six months to recover. 
you probably don't even have two months to recover. So if you have shooting after shooting after shooting, murder after murder after murder, you don't have time to recover. You don't have that six-month period of recovery because while you're recovering, another one happens. And so those symptoms of hypervigilance, avoidance, fear, dissociation, anger, aggression, anxiety, depression, grief are all compounded on top of each other, on top of each other. And you, you're you in a constant state of hyperarousal. There are studies shown that it was a study on college students, black college. Um, I think they're all males. And 85% of them said that they experienced some PTSD-like symptoms after the murder of Stephon Clark. Um, so when you already have a community with a history of oppression, right? And then they have continued oppression, institutionalized oppression, institutionalized discrimination, feeling like they're targeted. Um, it's not hard to understand that that could lead to continued negative mental health effects. So my point is that with these, we have to just be super cautious about what our intake of these videos are to try to balance out any mental health effects. I completely understand that these videos are needed. I completely understand that we have righteous anger and righteous rage, right? And I completely understand that there are some people in the world who need these videos just to show proof that these things are happening and still happening. Although I don't know why, there are people who are still in denial about racism, right? But you got to protect yourself if you want to continue fighting for justice. Burnout is real. PTSD is nothing to play with. Um, and on top of that, you have to get back to your normal life. You can't stop and grieve until, you know, you're starting to feel better. Especially if you're not related to this person. Most in places of employment does not offer grief for collective trauma, right? Vicarious trauma, vicarious racism. Um, so you really have to be aware, self-aware, reflect on your emotions and your feelings and the effects that these things have on you to know when to take a break from social media, when to step back in. You know, you can be someone who fights for what's right and never have to watch a video. You can also be someone who wants to point out all the discrepancies and the issues they've seen with the case by using the video. I'm not here to say which way is right, um, but I do know that the psychological reactions to these videos can produce so many different symptoms 
all the ones I named, but even like low self-esteem, humiliation, feeling like you're unsafe in your own community, which leads to isolation, feelings of powerlessness, which is a very hard thing to swallow for a community of people who have been denied power systemically for generations, right? Um, so keep in mind, you know, the collective memories, the collective trauma. When I say collective memories, I'm talking about things like slavery, Ku Klux Klan, Jim Crow, the Black Codes, um, the unethical medical treatment of given to black women and men, redlining, civil rights movements, um, you know, all those things, segregation, lynchings, slave patrol, like these are what I mean by collective memories and collective traumas. Um, and of course, people definitely have different reactions. So you may be a person who can watch these and you have a strong mental fortitude or, you know, and you're fine, but if 85% of college students that were in that um, study say that they experienced PTSD-like symptoms, it's more of y'all out there than you think. And it may be, you know, it may manifest in ways that you're not, you just don't realize, right? Like that hypervigilance, always having to keep your head, keep your head on the swivel, Right. That could be a result of watching these videos. Um, anger, lashing out at people who probably have nothing to do with the problem, right? You're lashing out at people who are not the cops or people who are not upholding the systems of oppression. You could be lashing out at the person you love and you don't know. So one of the things, and I read this, and I think I told you I'm taking a DEI certification class. So it was an article she shared, and I have to, hmm, was it an article she shared? I don't think it was the DI certification class. Y'all know I just be reading stuff, okay? But there was an article <laughs> talking about how a lot of times when people go into, like, counseling and therapy sessions, people from marginalized communities, so not just Black, but specifically people of color, you know, a lot of the symptoms that they may be experiencing cannot be explained by what's in the DSM-5, what's in like what the um, mental health disorders are. Some of it can be explained by racism, marginalization, oppression, discrimination. And as social workers, as future counselors, as future, you know, anyone who's working with a population that includes marginalized people, you need to be aware of how these things manifest and also look for signs that, you know, maybe this low self-esteem doesn't have anything to do with the fact that, you know, their husband cheated on them. Maybe it's due to the fact of feeling like they are not valued by society. That's just a, just a quick example, but like looking for deeper root causes especially with black people and people from marginalized communities because they are experiencing things that your normal mental health training don't cover. It doesn't cover, right? 
even think this was a shorter segment than the last one, but I hope it was clear in my point that I'm trying to make. Um, just protect your mental health, guys. Okay? However that looks for you, protect your mental health and know when to take a break. All right? It is time for our last segment, recently in grad school. So, um, the school semester, my final school semester, is in full swing. I think we have had two or three classes so far. So, I go to classes on Saturdays and I spend most of my day from 8.30 to 2.30 in class on Saturdays, which is why my program is a three-year program, not a two-year program, like full-time students. Um, and I'm taking two classes right now. I'm taking Social Work 718, Systems Analysis and of Social Work Practice, and I'm taking a policy class, Social Work 778, I believe it is. Um, let's talk about the policy class first. So in the policy class, I have my first black professor. Um, I'm very happy about that. <laughs> she, I'm very happy about that because, um, as social workers, you expect to see diversity. I expect to see diversity as a social worker because that is, you know, we are supposed to lead the profession that is all about social justice and, you know, helping marginalized populations and who, you know, we need to see some marginalized populations teaching us, right? So very happy about that. Um, and the policy class is actually turning out to be really interesting. She's like having us like take stances on like different policies, um, state policies and kind of either like agree, strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree, and kind of give like our reason behind it. And then we're also, we have a couple of group assignments um, for the class as well. So things are like shaping out to be really interesting in that class and I'm looking forward to it. Um, the second class, um, Social Work 718, the Systems Analysis class, that is considered our capstone class. So in this class, we're doing what is called case analyses and I'll just tell y'all the professor the professor told us to plan our lives around this class this class and I think she was serious like and we've had this professor throughout our years um at the university and she's great I love her to death I think she's amazing but this class is a little more serious and a little more strict around what's expected of you um, what is allowed and not allowed. So like there's a stricter attendance policy, a stricter participation policy, like how you participate in class. And there's no like ability to really extend assignments, all of which I've never had a problem with, but just kind of knowing that these things happen it's interesting to me because that lets you know how serious this class is. Apparently, this class, um, we're up for reaccreditation. So, like, 
she called us the guinea pigs pretty much is what she said we are for the reaccreditation process and they're kind of testing out some different things on us and I was like I didn't consent to being a test study but you know whatever as long as I graduate um and then also this is the class where we take our comprehensive assessment which is required to graduate so if we fail it we can't graduate so the comprehensive assessment is not actually a part of this class but it's just where we take the test at um and that test comes up in february so it's coming up really fast and they have given us a study guide so when we first um like started our program our graduate program this test was meant to be multiple choice some things happened and now it is not multiple choice anymore. So initially, it was multiple choice. You take it at home. You kind of have like, you know, the time you need to get it done and get it back in. Now the test is in person in class. There is no multiple choice questions. It is all essay style. Um, so they have made the test a little more rigorous, which I would normally be fine with. But the problem that I'm having, and I, I'm just going to have to suck it up and do it. It's the memorization of it. So the study guide pretty much tells you everything that's going to be on the test and what you need to do. But you cannot have the study guide in there with you, nor can you have anything in there with you. You can't Google things. You can't do anything. So like when you want to remember certain steps to an intervention or you have to make sure you are citing the author's names, like the author of like the theories, the theorist names, um, anything, you just have to remember it. And my memory isn't always the best, but it's going to have to be the best because I can't fail it or I won't graduate. So that's adding a tiny bit of stress to me. Also, I haven't figured out which theory I want to focus on. Um, as you see from the previous um, segment, I tend to focus on things that affect Black people specifically. But... I feel like I need to do something a little more recognizable, a little more normal for them because I don't know who will be um, grading my test. Um, and I want it to be something that they recognize easily, something that is simple for them to follow along with so there's no confusion about what I'm talking about, what the theory means. You know, if I could guarantee that some of my professors from my coursework will be grading my paper i will be fine but i can't guarantee that so i need to go simple simple isn't really my specialty if i'm being honest i always go for something completely strange but this is not the time to be um complicated this is a time to go with not even what i know but what they know i want them to read this and be like okay she gets you know cognitive theory she gets social learning theory she gets all these things um so that's what I am working on is filling out this um, study guide for this test in the midst of all of this, working on these case analyses. Let me tell you about these case analyses, okay? Because they're not just normal. It's very intense. I think I told you she, she said we would fail them. Um, our first analyses will probably be failed. And I'm like, I don't be failing stuff, okay? That's not what I do. I make A's. <laughs> 
actually, that's how I really felt like when she said that. And she said it to the whole class. So it wasn't anything, you know, you know, directed towards me. But I took it personally because I'm like, no, you know, I think they have a pretty strong cohort. And I literally have never made anything less than an A. So for you to tell me that we're going to fail, I was like, well, what in the world are we doing? And then it was like there was really no guidance on how to do the case analyses, which I thought was odd. Because typically, if we have an assignment due, it's not that they give us like an outline or a study guide, but it's it tells you the parts that you need. And they may even like give you an example in class. So you kind of have something to go on. And our example in class was really just like making like story mapping kind of. And I was like, how is this going to help me figure out the case? Because part of the case analysis is the conceptual analysis. So it's like, Conceptual analysis is not like taking the case and like summarizing it. It's taking the case and inferring some kind of meaning behind everything to find the root cause of the problem that we don't know what the problem is either. You have to you have to figure out the problem through the case. That's why she did like the story mapping, right? To figure out the problem. And then the contextual analysis has to be culturally, politically, socially, um, economically um, relevant. So it even involves looking at like the time period. So like our first case that we did was about a 14-year-old girl who was in foster care, who had been suicidal, like admitted to the hospital for like 21 days. Um, her grandparents, who she was living with because her mother was on drugs and couldn't like take care of her and her other three siblings. Um, she I couldn't go back to the grandparents' house. The grandparents like, we can't handle her. We don't want her back in the home. So she went to a, a residential treatment center for like youth. And, you know, now she's in the custody of DSS and there's a caseworker there. And then there's a person at the um, facility who's like a psychologist that she's close with. And you know, her mom gets cleaned up, gets her other three kids back. And then when it's time for her to go back home, she finally goes there after being like out of her mom's house for several years at this point. But she goes back home and then within less than a month, she leaves the home and ends up back in the residential treatment facility. Um, And, the you know, the girl has a whole bunch of stuff going on. But so it's this kind of case where now, this is pretty much the summary, right? That's a quick summary. And you have to figure out what the root cause is. <laughs> and I think in my mind, I did a great job. But then in class, when we went over the um, the case, what I was, the way I went with the case was completely different. And that's fine, but it leaves me wondering how I did on the case. So just a little, a little stressed waiting to get my grade back for that um but yeah that is what's been going on in grad school recently not very much I will definitely keep y'all updated on how the comprehensive exam goes I do have another class that I'll be taking starting in March and I think it's like two months or a little less than two months which means it's gonna be probably really intensive like a lot of stuff due in a short amount of time so if y'all don't hear from me between like march and may 
just know it's because I have three very involved classes and I don't got time to podcast, okay? <laughs> yeah, but I think that's all that's going on in grad school this week. All right, beautiful people, that is all I have for y'all today. I hope I gave y'all something to kind of mull over in your mind to think about, especially regarding, you know, watching videos of Black people getting murdered by cops or Black people being murdered in general. Anyone being murdered, honestly, because it doesn't just affect Black people. Um, Those kind of images can affect anyone. That's what happened with 9-11 and a lot of people were all of a sudden afraid of Middle Eastern people. Um, But that's not a here nor there for now. Um, Please remember that if you are interested in being a guest on the show as a someone who wants to come on and talk about their experiences in grad school, if you are a current social work student or someone who is aspiring for licensure, or even someone looking to change up their career in social work and wants to come on and talk about their experiences, please send me an email at aspiringblacksocialworker at gmail.com. Shoot me a DM on Instagram at aspiringblacksocialworker. Um, follow me while you're there. And then if you can, please remember to um, subscribe to the podcast and rate and review the podcast. Until next time, peace. Thank you.